0: Welcome back to the Knowledge of Wharton podcast. I'm Rachel Kipp, Associate Editorial Director of the Knowledge of Wharton website. We're approaching the 10th anniversary of the 2008 financial crisis, a crisis that was in part defined by a crisis in the subprime mortgage market. Wharton Management Professor Natalia Vinakarova has a new paper that looks at the evolution of mortgage backed securities and the unintended consequences of the short memories of some of the market's participants. Natalia, thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Now, the inspiration for this research really goes back to the introduction of mortgage-backed securities. So could you tell us a little bit about that? So one of
1: the things I I think many people do not realize is this last mortgage-backed securities market got started in the 1970s. And specifically, the goal was very much to find funding for the baby boomers as they were buying houses. And what's interesting about the market is for the first 15 years or so of mortgage-backed securities being around, bond investors did not believe that these were bonds. And the big project for mortgage-backed securities issuers was convincing bond investors that they could treat mortgage-backed securities as bonds. And what one of my papers on this topic does is looks at what was the process by which mortgage-backed securities issuers convinced bond investors that these were, in fact, bonds.
0: Now, what did they do?
1: I think that this is the really interesting part, which is mortgage-backed securities and bonds are different on a number of dimensions. And the dimension that bond investors were most concerned about in the 1970s and early 80s was prepayment risk with the idea being that mortgage-backed securities are bundles of mortgages, and your average borrower can repay his or her mortgage at any time. And most of the time, these borrowers would not incur a penalty. And what this meant was that as an investor, if you were buying a security backed by 30-year mortgages, there was a very small chance that the security would still be around 30 years out. It could have been repaid in seven years and 12 and there was a lot of uncertainty about when these mortgages would actually be repaid and so as a bond investor somebody's trying to sell you something and they can't even tell you how long the thing is going to be around and obviously bond investors pushed back and what one of the interesting things i about my research is I get to go back and look at the various things that mortgage-backed securities issuers tried to sell bond investors on mortgage-backed securities. And one of the things I feel like people don't appreciate is just how many different securities mortgage-backed securities issuers issued in this quest, right? So in my research, I document at least seven or eight different types of mortgage-backed securities, and. That's just what was offered to the public, right? I have no way of tracking
0: the many private experiments. How did market participants come to accept these mortgage-backed securities as being like bonds? An important step in the acceptance of mortgage-backed
1: securities as bonds was developing tools that bond investors believed would manage prepayment risk. And the tools that won the game... Uh, that was introduced in 1983 as in a public security called the collateralized mortgage obligation, was tranching. Now, the idea behind tranching is that you can slice investors into different classes. So tranche is the French word for slice. And each of these slices of investors would theoretically be exposed to different levels of risk. So you had the junior tranches, which were supposed to absorb the risk. So the senior tranches were, in fact, protected by the fact that you had the junior tranches as part of the security. And the security that started it all only had three tranches. By the early 90s, you had securities with something like 68. You had things that were called... Soft bullets, turbo bullets, sticky diffusion jump Z things. Um, But the precursor for this flourishing of all these tranches was that when in 1983, Freddie Mac issued the security called the Collateralized Mortgage Obligation that used tranching. It was the first publicly issued security that used tranching. Bond investors said, "Okay, we now believe you. We now believe you because each of these tranches was given a ballpark range of repayment. And so if you were a pension fund looking for longer-term securities, you knew that the security you were buying would be safe from prepayment risk for the first five, seven, however many years you needed.
0: And now we get further down the line into the 2000s, into the time of the financial crisis, and what what you find is is that past experience really didn't play very much of a role at all into what happened next. So this is the interesting thing. So
1: even before we get to the 2000s, in the early 90s, the Fed undertakes a series of interest rate cuts. And so every just about every mortgage borrower in the United States has an opportunity to refinance their mortgage. And the reason they have this opportunity is because the bond investors' capital flowed into the mortgage market, right? So Prior to the bond investors believing that mortgages were, mortgage-backed securities were bonds, prior to that point, you have these concerns about insufficient financial capital flowing to the mortgage market. And once the bond investors believe that these things are bonds, once they believe that tranching will work, just about enough money flows into this market to enable as many people as wanted to to refinance so you had 70% of all borrowers repaying their loans in some securities and what that meant was no matter how well the tranching of prepayment risk was structured and how much fancy math went into it at the end of the day the junior tranches disappeared right they were kind of overwhelmed by the risk and so the senior tranches found themselves vulnerable. So if you are, were a pension fund investor who co- was comfortably sitting in the knowledge that whatever it is you owned would not be repaid for the next five years, you found yourself in the same boat as the junior tranches. And so what I argue in the paper right, is, is this series of events, starting with the faith in the efficacy of tranching, um, leading to the influx of bond investor capital into the mortgage market, leading to this self-destructive loop. Right, tranching doesn't work because people believe it works, um, is exactly predictive of the events of 2008. And moreover, what's interesting about uh, this meltdown of tranching for prepayment risk is that's what encouraged people to invest in subprime mortgages, in higher-risk mortgages. Because some of these subprime mortgages had prepayment penalties, which prevented the borrowers from refinancing. And so, in a way, the movement towards these non government backed mortgage backed securities with default risk was driven by the fact that they were seen as being a safer bet from a prepayment risk perspective.
0: So, now what were the most surprising conclusions here in terms of just what you, when you looked back at all this information, what were the most surprising conclusions in terms of like how market participants reacted to all this?
1: So, one of the reasons why people did not update their beliefs about whether mortgage-backed securities were bonds, was because people constructed narratives that were very specific to the crisis. So the early 90s events were variously called the meltdown, the mayhem of the mortgage market. But the explanation that got constructed for the mayhem had to do with the fact that mortgage mortgage lenders lowered the fees associated with refinancing. And so instead of blaming tranching or the use of tranching for what happened, instead of seeing the systematic causes of the events of the 1990s, the market participants settled for this very local explanation. This is what happened. And I think we see something similar with the 2008 crisis where instead of looking for structural causes, you know, this is a problem with tranching, this is how things work what we see is a search for this very specific explanation, right? And this tendency to construct this very specific explanation for such a large event, I think, it is also similar to what we saw following the 1990s.
0: Now, why do you think people want that very specific explanation as opposed to something, I mean, is it because they're seeking that's easier to fix than maybe something more structural? I, I think it's a combination
1: of that. It's also a combination of the fact that people have a lot of time pressure, right? People in these jobs, uh, whether they be investors, rating agencies, investment bankers, they are all working with time pressure. And quite frankly, most of them do not last in their jobs for long enough to remember the previous cycle. And the ones who do, and I've interviewed some of the folks who were in at Solomon Brothers in the 1980s in that room where they were sitting and coming up with new securities, they kind of partition their experience. Uh, So so I didn't really find anybody trying to look for these global lessons. And I think one way in which this failure to look is evident, and this is something I found surprising, is if you look at the arguments in the 1970s in favor of developing these mortgage-backed securities, there is absolutely no reference to the prior U.S. markets in which mortgage-backed securities played a part. So one such market developed in the 1870s, another such market developed in the 1920s, and even as these markets have certain parallels to what happened in the 1970s or rather to the events post-1970s once these securities were introduced, you don't see any of these actors making specific appeals to these prior experiences. So, and even, even as they don't remember the history, they literally repeat it. So, for instance, some of the names of the mortgage-backed securities issued in the 1970s are exactly the same names that were used in the 1920s. In 1975, Freddie Mac issued something that was a precursor to the collateralized mortgage obligation, a security that they call guaranteed mortgage certificate which is exactly the name that was used in the 1920s by mortgage insurance companies issuing mortgage-backed securities. And the parallel does not end there, of course, because what happened in the 1920s as part of the mortgage crisis is these mortgage insurance companies went bankrupt. And this is very much what happens to AIG
0: in 2008. Is there a way to build institutional memory into the system then? Because if even the even if there are people around who remember and aren't sharing what they know, then is there another way to make sure that when we're introducing these financial innovations that somehow somebody somewhere is keeping in mind what happened in the past?
1: Absolutely. And I think a good analogy here is the Food and Drug Administration, where if you're trying to bring a new drug to market, at least perhaps imperfectly, but this is an entity that tries to force memory. So if your drug failed to do certain things or it poisoned people in the 60s, you can't reissue it and say, oh, let's do this again. And, you know, one of the symptoms of a lack of memory in the system is what I do in my research is I take the prospectuses, the documents explaining what the securities are and what they should do as almost a fossil record, right? Because that's my way of reconstructing what these securities did. And just locating these documents is surprisingly difficult. So, and this is even the case within the firms that pioneered these securities. So, for instance, I contacted Citibank or Citigroup, which bought Solomon Brothers through on the merger path a while ago. And I asked them for prospectuses of some of the securities that were pioneered by the Solomon Brothers in the 80s. And the reply I got is, one, they couldn't give me access to their archives because I wasn't a client. But two, they do not keep their prospectus records in the archive for longer than three months. Now, we are talking about securities with 30-year maturity. So the fact that we live in a regulatory environment where an issuer of a security or an underwriter, in their case, of a security can discard What is effectively the contract between them and the investors seems very surprising.
0: Now, does that sort of also speak to the idea that maybe there needs to be more regulation requiring that this type of documentation needs to be kept? And Unfortunately for the mortgage industry in
1: the United States, the problem runs deeper than the regulation of documentation. I can think of no other country in the world where you have these fly-by-night mortgage originators, which disappear after every bust, right? And and there are trade-offs in terms of we want more people to have access to credit, we want the credit to be cheaper, but it seems that in designing the system, the access to credit considerations uh, perhaps get treated, get get prioritized ahead of the safety of the system.
0: Now, it seems like during the crisis, and I mean, even up till now, I mean, there's been a lot of talk and you read a lot about people trying to find someone to blame? Whose fault is this? Who can we prosecute for this? Who can we put in jail for this? And one of the interesting things about your paper is that you find that while you may want to subscribe sort of animus to some of these market participants, that that didn't necessarily, that wasn't necessarily the case. Right. So so the perspective
1: from which I approach my research is imagine the best intentioned actor in the system. So imagine somebody at Citigroup um, who is trying to learn From the 1970s, we're not going to make them learn from the 1920s, but they're trying to learn or build on the knowledge that Citigroup accumulated. At some point in tracking down these various people, many of whom are no longer with Citigroup, just the circular pathway one would have to travel. So imagine you're an analyst, you're a mortgage-backed securities, um, you're investing in mortgage-backed securities at Citigroup and you're trying to learn from the past – you would have to go in the circuitous path of locating the people you would learn from. And so, so there are systematic problems that do not get addressed. And in, in, in a way, I feel like the incentives narrative is not helpful. I, and this is not to say that there wasn't fraud, that there wasn't ill will, but the system has structural problems. The fact that we repeat mortgage-backed securities markets every 50 years, right, suggests to me that it takes everybody to die
0: who remembered what it was like, and then we try again. Right. So now, as we're coming up on 10 years, and I mean, I think as that, you know, there has been a lot of talk of when is the next crisis going to be? What's going to cause the next crisis? Do you see, first of all, any warning signs and also, Any potential changes that we could make that might help, like might protect against that a little bit?
1: I think that the house price inflation is an incredibly potent signal of us being in a bubble, of us being on the verge of a crisis. But I think the quantitative easing, which is effectively the printing money machine, is creating liquidity, which has been shown by folks like Marcus Brunemeyer at Princeton to bring about crises, right? So when you have too much money chasing too few attractive options, you end up in a bubble and the bubble will have to burst. And so in terms of what we know about preventing financial crises, right, a lot of it is not rocket science. The banks are too big, right? The banks that were too big to fail 10 years ago are even bigger now. Um, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau has been more or less um, rendered ineffective by the current changes, and Dodd-Frank is being rolled back, which was a set of regulations that people didn't think was strong enough to remedy what we saw happen. So, so yes, so I think there are things that can be done, but it's not clear that the current administration is interested in pursuing these paths.
0: Now given a perfect world though where you had control to to do them, what would you do?
1: What I would do is I would further restrain the leverage of the banks. Right? So banking used to be a boring nine to five
0: job. Sure. It needs to go back to being a boring nine to five job. And now what's next for this research? Where are you going to go from here? So uh,
1: for me, because of my interest in these, what are the structural parameters of the system? One of the projects that I just submitted uh, to a journal looks at the history of mortgage ownership recording, because one of the very interesting things uh, that came out of the 2008 crisis is it turned out that in many cases, banks
0: didn't know who owned what loan. Right. And you remember seeing those news stories where they're trying to find who owns this property.
1: And so what I do in my research is I trace back the development of that system that keeps track of land ownership recording and mortgage ownership recording to the 1630s. Um, and what that allows me to do is kind of is, is to say, look, these are structural problems. They have been around through these multiple generations of reform, because I feel like one of the challenges reformers often face again without reference to history is that they think that they're the first people who tried to reform the system and I feel like learning from the people who came before them would actually be helpful.
0: Natalia thanks so much for being here. Thank you. You can find all of Knowledge at Wharton's articles, podcasts, and more on our website, which is knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. You can also find all of our podcasts on Apple's podcasting app, Stitcher, and wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review. It really does help like-minded folks to find the podcast. Thanks for listening. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.